Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. You know, this week as I was studying, uh, it, it brought to mind a, a memory for me that was kind of a nostalgic memory, which is the, the, the times that I spent as a kid on, on lazy Sunday afternoons, lazy Saturday afternoons, watching black and white old westerns. You know, it used to be back in the day when you only like three or four channels on the TV, you could always find one of them on a Saturday or Sunday that had the, the, the Westerns on repeat, just kind of going on. And one of the things that I, I loved about those was just how predictable they were. Like you could take a nap, you could go to the other room, the bathroom, come back, and it's like you knew exactly where they were at. You're like, oh, they're gathering the posse. They're going to go get the bad guy now. Way to go, guys. And part of what was uh, part of that, that, that familiarity and even that pattern that they had is that they very often had you know, this sheriff. Uh, the one sheriff that was always there, kind of an older white dude, disheveled, frumpy, looking pretty bad, running around, not quite knowing what he's doing. Somehow he still managed to get his badge on his suspenders or his undershirt as he was coming out still, right? And he was never really dealing with the bad guys. Uh, it, sometimes it's because he was a drunk. Sometimes it's because he was scared. Sometimes it's because he was in on it. He was taking a bribe and actually helping everyone out. And then usually in the show, there was that hero. Right? The hero would walk into the town, and you could just tell he, he knew how things should run. He had that air of confidence in him. Usually he would have some sort of confrontation a little bit where he'd give to the bad guys, but you could get a sense that he wasn't going to let that last long. And then, of course, he makes that clear to all the bad guys that you're not going to be able to do this in this town anymore. And then, of course, a fight ensues, right? People go flying out of glass windows, falling off of rooftops in dramatic fashions into water. And, and then by the very end, of course, he wins. Right? And usually he's the one at the very end who ends up wearing the badge now, and he's the one there to keep law and order and to keep the new protector of peace. You know, those, those shows are really formulaic, but we have similar formulas that we expect in our culture. You know, what causes a lot of sadness, frustration, or even social angst is when people that we expect to behave one way, to behave out of a certain identity, don't do it. We're really sad when teachers don't act lovingly and kindly and teacher-like towards their students. We have a hard time when civil servants or peace officers don't act like a protector but actually have, have persecuted someone. When we see parents who don't lay down their lives but instead take in very sad and disingenuous ways from their own children even. Now, that's exactly the kind of idea that James is going to be talking about today, this idea with faith and works. You know, he's concerned about how our identity and the outworking of our actions should match up, how, how we should all expect that they would match up in our life. You know, for James, his concern is with our faith and identity as God's beloved and chosen children and the actions that we're showing to a watching world. This is what James has been talking throughout this entire second section about obedience to the word. And we see that starting in chapter 1, verse 19. And he goes on and talks about being a doer of the word and not just a hearer in 1, through 25. He talked about bridling our tongue, serving widows and orphans as, as, a, as an expression of true religion in 1, through 27. 
And then just last week, we talked about not being partial, loving your neighbor rightly before the Lord in 2, 1 through 12. And this morning in our section, 14 through 26 in chapter 2, James is going to tackle that subject again, and he's going to specifically tackle the objection that many people have, how to separate, or rather how not to separate, faith and works. This is one of the most theologically rich sections of James, but it's also one of the more controversial sections of James, because James talks about all these things in very different ways than Paul. And most of us in our culture have been raised on Paul very uh, heavily. And so we come to this expecting it to be just like Paul would say. Here's how James starts this section. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a pretty simple section. I'm going to reorder it just so you can see the components here. He, he, He really has one statement and then two questions in there. So first, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works... What good is it? Can that faith save him? Right? Same words, just reordered, but we're supposed to see these different statements and questions that what should come out of the page for us. You know, often when James starts out with brothers and sisters, he's moving on to sort of a new idea in his mind. He's wanting to reorient us back to his argument. And here, he's trying to say that there's someone who might say they have faith, but when they're examined, there's, there's no works that go along with it. Now, this, this word works here in the way that it's used in Scripture usually talks about that there are works that can condemn a person or works that can commend a person. And there's two kinds of those works, and they're used interchangeably throughout Scripture. Jesus talks about it this way in John 3. This is how Jesus says. He says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You can see the two kinds of works there. Works that, that if brought to light would condemn someone, or works if brought to light would actually commend that they are in God and doing what God has asked them to do. And when we look at James this morning, the context is that James is saying there's a kind of faith that if we looked at it, that these people don't have works that would actually commend them. It wouldn't commend that this is real in their lives. And so when that happens, he has two questions. He says, what good is it? Can that faith save him? You know, first he says, what what good is that kind of faith? Good here is that idea of, is there a profit, a benefit, something that would bring into your life? And as James is writing this, the implied answer is no, there's no profit if you have this kind of faith a faith with no works that commend it. And again, he asks another question, can that faith save him? Again, the implied answer is no. That kind of faith, faith with no commendable works to it, cannot save a person. For James, this really isn't a question. He's being rhetorical. He's making a statement that says, whatever this person is calling faith really isn't faith by any biblical standard. It's not something that is going to to grow this person, to benefit them, nor is it going to save them. It all brings them no good and will not save them, all because there's no works to commend that faith. 
You know, for many people, as they, they hit this section and they begin to struggle with what is James doing with, with works and justification and faith, they oftentimes read through this section and come right back up here to the beginning and go, okay, I must have totally misunderstood James. What is he doing here? Some people would say, you know what? I wonder if James doesn't really mean faith in the big picture, like faith like trust in God for your salvation. Maybe they're talking just faith here like, can I get through this difficult situation, this difficult moment? And you know, maybe he's not saying saved in the sense of like saved from judgment one day, but maybe Maybe to get me through that difficult moment. So in that sense, if I work with God, I can get through these tough moments in my life. He can get me past them, but I have to be a part of that process. And sadly, that's a fool's errand. I mean, the words are really easy here. Faith is the kind of faith you would expect it to mean. This idea of do you put your faith in God, in Jesus Christ as the only hope for your salvation, the one who died on the cross to take your sins that you might have his righteousness and saved here is the, the exact same word that's used 30 times in the New Testament, and it's used every time in this idea of taken away from judgment, pulled out of that horrible idea that happens one day. You know, this section means exactly what you would think it would mean as you read it. There is something a person might call faith that really isn't faith that is profitable or salvific in their life, and the identifier is that there are no works to commend it. And James' two main points about that statement is, it's not good. It won't save. And so James does what, what James often does, what Jesus does, is he goes to a parable, an example, trying to give an illustration of how he believes that's true. And the first one he's trying to do, he's trying to deal with that first statement that it's not good. It doesn't bring about anything good. Here's what James says in 2, 15 through 17. <clears throat> he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice in there that James repeats that phrase, what good is it? He, he's trying to draw out that picture a little bit more so we can see how would that faith even be good for someone. And James starts talking about a particular brother or sister. He uses that word brother or sister, and so we're meant to be thinking this is someone in the body that these Jewish Christians would have known. This is not an outsider, not someone that they're unaware of. This is someone close to them, and this person has two needs. Number one, this person is poorly clothed, and number two, they lack daily food. You know, poorly clothed here, the word there is nakedness, gymnos. It's, it's where we get gymnasium from Greek wrestlers who wrestled naked. Uh, New Testament, when he uses that word, it oftentimes it was talking about in undergarments. That's how the New Testament thinks about it, that that's even being naked, is to be in your underwear. So we're meant to have this picture of a brother and sister, someone that should be in the, in the community that we're a part of, woefully underdressed, likely cold, uncomfortable, uh, struggling, and, and literally not even having enough food to eat for that day. No hope beyond that. It's not like they're holding it back or anything like that. And James says, this, this, this person, someone, one of you, he says, comes up to them and says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now, we miss a little bit of, of what this is saying in our culture. We've, we've narrowed down our greetings to things like, hi, hey, what's up? How are you? We usually use a question or something to draw people into conversation and engage them. But in fact, in most of the world, especially in Bible times, but even today, they start out with a blessing, an engagement towards someone, right? Peace to you in a lot of the world. In Israel, it's shalom. In Ethiopia, it's salamno. It's this idea of I give a blessing to you as my greeting to you. In fact, a lot of the Middle Eastern world does even really longer blessings. They'll say things like, may God bless you and your household and give you good health. 
And that's what's going on here. And that's what would have been the expectation. We see that kind of greeting throughout Scripture in the Old Testament. Judges 6, 1 Samuel 20, 2 Kings 5. And Jesus even uses those kind of blessings, both when he engages people or when he sends them off. In this case, sending off. Look how Jesus says it in two different times. First, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And then second, a different person. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's exactly this contrast that James is wanting us to think when we read this passage. You know, Jesus here, when there's, when there's a woman with, with blood that, that hasn't stopped bleeding for years, who grasps onto his, his outer cloak to have healing, and then in another example, the prostitute who comes in and washes his feet with oil and her hair, that she might find some acceptance and forgiveness. In both cases, Jesus heals and then forgives before he says, go with peace. That's, that's the situation we're supposed to be thinking of here that these people come and they pronounce a blessing over this brother and sister, literally telling them to have sustenance and be warm and feel good, while James says at the same time, without giving them the things needed for the body. That's why he asked at the very end, what good is it if they do that? Years ago, I was coming out of a, a grocery store here in Boise with another pastor and Odd enough, at the time, I had cash in my pocket, which is not usual anymore. And there was a lady there with a sign asking for help. And so after talking to the pastor, we decided, hey, let's go over and engage her. And walked up to her and just said, hey, you know, good to see you. Like, I'd like to know more about your story. How can I really be a help to you? What can I do? Could I even pray for you a little bit? Sadly, that was the wrong thing to say. She immediately started yelling and screaming at us. I do not want your prayers. All I want is money. All you people ever do is ask me for prayers and then do nothing. And we started trying to apologize. I'm so sorry. Like, I just wanted you to know you matter more than just giving you money. And she kept going and yelling and screaming, getting more and more animated. And we eventually just kind of backed out and apologized. I'm so sorry. That is not what we wanted because we, we were worried that she was going to get in trouble for herself with how she was acting. Now, I obviously don't know her story, and I likely won't until the other side of glory at some day to understand, but she seemed to have had many experiences like this, many experiences where someone would come up and ask her about her story, and she would actually open up to them only to find that they prayed for her and walked away and didn't care about her practical issues that were going on in her life. That was such a sad thought to me, such a sad witness that she was given that, that in her mind, someone asking to pray for her to care beyond her actual physical needs meant that they were going to end up ignoring the practical needs that she had. Now, I know it's way more complicated than that. My family and I, we lived in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and we saw many examples of people asking for money who then walked down the street and just purchased drugs and, and were being enabled. But that's not at all the kind of image that, that James is giving us here. These are people that they either should know, could know, and that seem to want to be known, that are struggling and being, and being available for people to know them. These are people who, who, who want help and have very practical needs that everyone can see. It's this kind of example that leads James to say at the end of this little section here, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. You know, so also, just like this example, if your faith lives itself out this way, 
If your faith isn't paired with the appropriate commending works, it's dead. That's probably one of the best-known phrases from James. Faith without works is dead. It comes up several times in this section. And now James knows that not everyone's going to be, be excited about this idea, that there's going to be some opposition pushing back against him. But what's interesting is it's usually not the opposition in his mind that I think we all come to the table with. You know, we, we are coming to the table with this idea of, it seems, James, that you're saying faith is against works and our salvation and what would, what would bring us before God rightly. And James isn't actually thinking of that argument. James is going to go on and bring up the opposition that he believes that is out there. He's going to give three arguments as to why he doesn't believe that's true, and then two examples. This is a long section, so let's look at it together here. James 2, 18 through 26. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, this whole section from 14 through 26 is one big uh, discussion, so we can't separate it. We need to look at it as a whole, but this section gets a little long, so we're going to break it down into several pieces. Let's start with James's first account of what is the objection. He would say that the main objection here is, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. It's clear by the way that James is making this argument that this is a real, a real statement that he's heard back, likely from these Jewish Christians, and he's wanting to kind of engage it and help them get clarity on what is going on. But it's also clear from this that he's thinking about something different than you and I. Think about it. If, if the real objection that James was trying to tackle was the objection that is it faith that saves me or works that saves me, this is probably how he would have phrased it. Something like, but someone will say, you have works and I have my faith. Right, it'd be very different, it'd be a flip-flop of that, right? Because James is the one saying, you need to have works. The argument would be someone else out there saying, listen, I got my faith, I don't need to add all these works, we're good. I don't have a problem here. And most scholars believe it's exactly because he has it flip-flopped that we're, it's clear that there's another issue going on here. For James, it's not, is it faith versus works? It's the question of, can you separate them? So that's why the question is just, hey, guess what? Someone would say, you have faith, I have works, it's a separation that is the problem. As if there's such a thing as a faith that doesn't have an outward demonstration or a working in someone's life. That's the most natural read of what James has been saying throughout this section. And especially when we look at his arguments, we can see that that's what he's trying to make sure that we don't miss. Look at his two arguments here. So his first argument, he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then his second argument, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So let's tackle that that first argument. It shows that he's clearly saying you can't separate these two ideas. And, And his point's kind of hard to refute. How would you, how would I talk about our faith if we couldn't point to anything that you do? 
It'd be really hard. I started thinking, I'm like, okay, I would talk about my affections internally. I would talk about my hope and my trust, these, these feelings, these emotions. But if I couldn't point to even something as simple as praying, reading the word, worshiping God, it becomes really hard to talk about what does faith really mean to me in my life. I don't know how I would make that clear to someone else. And I think it's really helpful then where James goes with his second argument, especially with how we talk in English. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He switches the word here from faith to believe. And he's actually giving it to the person arguing with him. You have belief. I, I, I believe that for you. you. You likely believe that God is God. You, you might even believe that Jesus is the son of God. You might even believe that you need to have a relationship with him, but it seems to have stopped short there. He seems to be talking about this idea that, that, that belief is, is not the same as having a real relationship with God. It's something intellectual that hasn't actually grown into something more for them. You know, I think... James, again, is remembering the sort of things that Jesus has said throughout his lifetime while James was with him. Things like this in Matthew 7. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. There's a type of knowing, a type of believing that doesn't come with a real relationship and with real faith in God. As James noted, the demons believe. They know who God is. They know that Jesus truly is the son of God. They know what is coming for them. And in fear, they shudder knowing the truth. Yet they don't have a loving relationship with God. They've rejected that with him, and they know what that means. You know, Jesus even says here in this passage that it's those who do the will of the Father. He's not talking about how people become saved. He's doing the same kind of argument that James is here, that, that that's an outworking, that the will of the Father is what people should be doing who are truly his. He's joining true faith in actions, faith in works, just like James does. And my guess is if James stopped here, it might not have been so difficult for people to understand what he's doing. Or if he'd even just use Rahab as his main example and not Abraham. The difficulty here is that James goes to Abraham as his example for not separating faith and works, while Paul goes to Abraham and uses the exact same section for a very different point. And that's super confusing. James starts out by making his third argument. He says to the people, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. He's getting a little sassy now. He's getting tired of the argument, but obviously he believes he's going to have to go there. He's saying, I got scripture. Do you want me to show you? Okay, I'll show you scripture. Here we go. And he starts with his first example with Abraham. (coughs) He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so here we go. Down the rabbit trail, that is not how Paul talks about Abraham. Let's look at what Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4. He also talks about it this way in Galatians. 
So here's Romans 4. This is Paul. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, those who haven't followed those laws? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. We could spend weeks just in that section of Romans 4 talking about how Paul understands Abraham and how he's using that example. Luckily for us, in Romans 3, he kind of summarized it. He said, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, now it gets real easy because we can literally take James 2.24, Romans 3.8, and lay them next to each other, and you can see the tension. Here's the tension. A person, this is James, is justified by works and not by faith alone. Here's Romans 3, one is justified of faith apart from the works of the law. You start to feel what people feel. If if, if they've been reading Paul and then they've been reading James, it's like, are you, you guys don't agree what's going on here. This isn't, we're not saying the same thing at all. And you can see clearly why that would be a problem. And so if you dive into it, here's what's interesting. It's actually James who's actually being the most consistent with how all of these different ideas, justification, works, salvation are used throughout the bulk of scripture. You know, let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Jesus says this, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak for by your words, they will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus is talking about that last day judgment and how out of a good heart, what will be seen is the good works that were brought out. And out of an evil heart, evil treasures, evil will be seen to have been brought out. He doesn't say that those good things that come out made the good heart. In fact, it's very clear from all of Scripture that only God, only His Holy Spirit can change our heart, make it good, that good things, true good things, not things that just look good to the world, true good things can come out of us. But Jesus says that this is part of the process, that by the end, the totality of evidence will be looked at and we will be seen to have been in God by everything in our lives. That's how scripture talks most often about this idea of of justification. That justification to be made righteous is part of the whole package of how things are seen. What is going on in someone's life? In the Old Testament, it's talked about that way in 1 Samuel 12, Micah 6 and 7, 1 Kings 8. It's really similar to how Isaiah talks about the final judgment in Isaiah 43 and 45, 50 and 53. When James is talking about this idea of being justified by works, he's talking about the totality of our relationship with God. That's what he is thinking about. It's it's how would it be true that someday when you knock that God is going to open the door to you and not say, I didn't know you. He's worried about this whole relationship. How have you walked with the Lord completely? And that's what James sees in Abraham. 
He sees a man that God said was just and righteous, that he made him that way. And then look at how he lived. Look how he began to trust the Lord. It's very same to the project that the writer of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews 11, when he talks about the hall of faith. All these people who, by God's grace, he implanted faith in their hearts, changed them that they might trust him and know him. And then look at the amazing things that came out of them as they walked out that faith and trust in God in their lives. Paul, on the other hand, is doing a completely different project. Paul is wanting to understand where is the exact moment in time that that justification occurs. He's not asking the big question about the whole life. So Paul's question is, is justification occurring before works or after works? That's what we just read in Romans. And Paul looks at Abraham and he latches onto the chronology, the order of events that occurred in Abraham's life, and cites Abraham as evidence that the initial declaration of righteousness in, in, in Abraham was attained solely by God on the basis of faith. It's a different question that he's asking. So when we come back to our section here on, on uh, these passages, we can see here that the real question is, how are they both talking about faith? By faith and not by faith alone. They're asking different questions here. Uh, Paul and James would wholeheartedly agree with one another. James is not trying to identify whether faith came first or works came first. He's just saying you can't separate those two. A real faith, an active living faith in your life has an expression in your life. It, it plays itself out in a multitude of ways. And Paul would agree that that's what real faith is. Otherwise, like three quarters, seven eighths of his epistles aren't even worth reading. He's telling us how to be more Christ-like, how to walk rightly with God now that we are his beloved children. And similarly, Paul is saying that it's faith first, that you, the works will never get you to the faith that you need. And James would agree. James would agree that the true change in our heart is only something that God can do and that it's out of that heart, like Jesus says, flows any good deed that would ever occur in our life to God's glory. So let's go back to our original analogy. It's kind of like Paul. Paul's over here talking to that hero in the old Western, right? And Paul is saying to that hero, he's saying, hey, man, I, I, you're doing some really good work here in this town. Really appreciate it. It's really helpful. In fact, you're kind of doing some sheriffy kind of stuff. But, you know, you can't make yourself a sheriff by just doing sheriffy stuff. There's actually a process for how you become a sheriff, no matter what these movies show. Like, there's kind of training and things that you need to go through. Let me put that into, like, Christianese, right? Like, if he was saying what James and Paul were trying to say here, it'd be like he would be saying to that, that hero, you have good deeds, yes, things that look good. But if you don't know God, if you don't truly walk with him and have faith in Jesus Christ alone, you are not a son or daughter in Christ. No amount of work can earn that. It is only through faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection for you that you might have his righteousness. That's the only way to get the badge, as it were, on your chest that says, beloved. Now, just because that's the conversation Paul's having over here with the hero doesn't mean that James can't be having a very different conversation over here with the sheriff. That James can't be looking at the sheriff and be saying to him, you say you're a sheriff? <laughs> I don't see you doing sheriffy things. This town's a mess. It's falling apart. What is going on here? You need to start doing sheriffy-like things. 
Or to put it in Christianese, if he's over here talking to us, saying to us, you say you're a Christian? You say you're a beloved adopted son or daughter of God? I don't see you living in any way that tells me that's true in your life. I don't understand what you're doing. This makes no sense to me. You know, for the sheriff in that story, that would likely be a wake-up call. You know, he might, might begin going out and begin to do the sheriffy things. And if he did that, that would not him be trying to make himself a sheriff, but rather that would be him living out of the identity that he already had. That'd be him living what he was supposed to be already, the truth of his life. And really, that's the same for you and me, Christian. You know, this is what makes the comments about Rahab just very consistent with what he said about Abraham. He says, and in this same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, if you don't have works that commend your faith, is it really faith working in your lives? This is what James is trying to say. James is not arguing that works be added to faith but that one possess the right kind of faith, a faith that works, faith that does things. You know, at the beginning of this series, I was a little hard on Luther for what he said about James, and so I want to bring him back in because I love him. He has so many good thoughts. And what's so funny is that in the beginning of his commentary on Romans in the preface, he actually says exactly what James is trying to do here, and it's so well said. This is Martin Luther. He says, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it to not be doing good things incessantly, nonstop. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. So what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you as we come to this passage? I wonder if we oftentimes need that same wake up as the old dusty, frumpy sheriff. As it were, kind of, you know, your head dunked in the horse trough a couple times and brought back up. And if we, we need to see and hear someone say to us, are your works commending your faith? Are they commensurate with what it would be to be a beloved son or daughter, to to be a royal priest to the high king, to be an ambassador of the most high God? Many times I need to care more whether my, my works are absent that would be demonstrating that or whether my works are actually opposed to what it would be like to walk that out. And if I were to care more about those actions, it wouldn't be me pulling myself up by my bootstraps to make sure that I was saved. Rather, it would be me allowing the Holy Spirit to work in my life, for you to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, that you might begin to evidence, to show the reality of what God is doing in you, how he is changing you and conforming you. So, I mean, how about you? Where might you need a good talking to about how your actions don't align rightly? how they aren't expressing what it means to be in Christ Jesus as a beloved son or daughter. Are you willing today to listen to the people in your life who are, who are maybe noticing some of those actions and how they don't align rightly, to trust that they're there for your good? 
Are you willing to go to Scripture and let it expose you to show you what it would look like to walk in the Lord and to be challenged? Are you, are you willing to let the Holy Spirit, as he pricks your conscience, to do that work, to work on you, to remind you what it would look like? I mean, do we really believe that God is truly calling us, as James says, to be perfect and complete in Jesus Christ? That that's the goal of walking out this life as long as we're here until in an instant God makes that done to walk it more and more and see ourselves be made more perfect and complete in Jesus Christ by the work of his Holy Spirit. I think the surest way for all of us to be willing to do that is to be so certain that our identity is secure, that our identity will not change. We left James last week in James 2, 12 through 13, where he said this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's where we live now in Jesus Christ. We live as those who are under a law of liberty in Jesus, who have been shown great mercy, great love. And if we truly believe that, if we believe that all of that has been dealt with in Jesus Christ, that we wear that badge, beloved, now, solely because of him and what he has done for us, we can admit when we're the frumpy, dorky sheriff who's not doing what he's supposed to do, when we can admit that we are broken vessels that are not carrying the water and the wine that we should, and we can say like Paul, I am the worst sinner that I've ever known because I'm secure that that doesn't change my identity. That's already been dealt with in Jesus Christ, so I can walk into the ways that he might want to conform me to being more perfect and more complete like Jesus without shame and without fear. And then this morning, as you ponder those things, where, the, where God might be calling you out through James to more rightly align your identity and your works, we want to come to communion this morning and remember that, that you don't have to worry about the end result of all of that. God will ensure that you will get there, that you will be made perfect in Jesus Christ because of what he's done for you on the cross. That's the remembrance that we come back to this morning. And so I pray as as we enter into this next song that you would be contemplating what does the Lord want from you in this season to walk out your faith and how can you trust in him for your identity in that? Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful that you have, you have done things this way, that, that faith and works are connected. Our actions demonstrate the identity that we have. And Lord, Lord God, how much joy should we have that you have brought us into relationship with yourself, that we are a beloved son or daughter, that you have made all of that possible. And all we have to do now is walk in that reality, walk in the power that you give us daily in your Holy Spirit and not fear anything that you might show us because you have loved us completely and wholly in Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you for all the ways that that is true for me and for my brothers and sisters here. Father God, this morning, I just pray that you would press that into our hearts, that as we we continue on in James to look at the ways that our actions might not align with our faith all the time, that we would be more and more in love with the God who showed us himself through Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.